So this week was the first week that the snow stuck to the ground for the season. Um, as the weather's getting colder, our family is spending a lot more time indoors. And uh, we get to do a lot more indoor kind of activities like building forts. My, uh, my girls are four, almost five, and two, and they love building forts. Um, they'll build forts in the living room and then build a fort in their bedroom and then build a fort in the basement. And then pretty soon we've got uh, three forts in our house and it gets kind of out of control sometimes. But uh, when they go to bed, uh, Rachel and I will um, begin taking down some of the forts. Maybe we'll leave one up, but when they wake up, they realize that one of their forts has been taken down. They just go, no, you need to put it back up. But, um, we say, all right, we'll put it back up. They say, it has to be just like it was. But we can't always get it exactly how it was. And so there's tears. Um, and there's tears because the fort is more than just blankets and pillows and chairs. The fort is uh, is kind of this landmark of this uh, their imaginations, that they've built a world inside of that fort where they can become someone new and they can imagine a whole new story for themselves. They can create a whole new universe. But uh, when we take that down, that all goes away and they have to rebuild. They have to. We have to figure out how to make up new universes and new stories and new identities. And uh, that can feel kind of exhausting for my girls, but um, they actually end up getting really good at building forts. Why are we talking about fort building? At Victory Point, we are about discipleship. We're about making, multi- making and multiplying disciples. And um, disciples are learners. Disciples are learners who, who are learning how to follow Jesus. They're, they're watching Jesus. And as we watch Jesus, um, we are, are subjecting ourselves, we're submitting ourselves to the ongoing process of formation, of sanctification, of letting go of our old self, our old identity, and grabbing hold of the new thing that God is doing. We believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, something new has been born inside of us when we received Christ. And as we grow in our faith, we are learning to let go of the old and let the new be born. But that can often feel like loss. It can feel like our forts get taken down. Today we're going to talk about a story from Haggai. I never thought I'd be preaching from Haggai. Um, Haggai is a prophet in the post-exilic period. That means the uh, the Israelites have been to exile. God uh, promised that his presence would go ahead of them into exile, that even though they were being punished for their disobedience, that God would lead them back into the land that was their inheritance. And um, And God did lead them back. But when God led them back, the Babylonians had destroyed the temple. And the people returned to to Jerusalem to find ruins. All that was left was the foundation. The rest had been completely destroyed. So let's pick up in this story. And before we do, let's pray. God, thank you that you are doing a new thing in us. I pray that as you, as you speak your word today, that it would cut us to the heart, that it would fan into flame the gift that you've given us, that it would fan into flame the new creation that is being born in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Haggai 1, 15b through 2.9. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, 
the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. They return to Jerusalem to find ruins. The Persians are no longer in control now. That's why they returned to Jerusalem. In fact, um, the Persians are in control and they are... um, they they have elected Zerubbabel as the governor and appointed him to be the governor of Jerusalem. And as they return, the Persians have given Zerubbabel um, money to rebuild the temple. They've given him a grant to rebuild it. And the people are all gathered back in Jerusalem. And you've got a high priest, but no one has done anything for 18 years. For 18 years, they've been staring at the ruins. And I'm wondering if they might have feel, felt hopeless hopeless as they look at the ruins, hopeless as they stare at the foundations and imagine what used to be there and wondering, how could we ever build again? How could we ever restore it to its former glory? How could we make it just like it used to be? Haggai is upset, I think. He remembers the old temple. He's an old man at this point, and he probably remembers, just even as a little tiny boy, he remembers seeing the temple, the glory of the temple. And now he's receiving a word from God where he is urging the people to build, to work, to get moving. And they won't. They won't. They're feeling stuck, staring at foundations, as if they woke up one morning and their fort had been torn down. Haggai can't rebuild it. He doesn't know how to build. Haggai can't rebuild it. Zerubbabel can't rebuild it. Joshua can't rebuild it. The people can't rebuild it. How do we move forward? How do we build new things when we can't even imagine the new thing? How can we build new things when all we see is hopelessness? How can we build new things when we are stuck in the old? We struggle with this also. In our world, we are stuck We are stuck looking at foundations. Our forts have been torn down and we don't often know what to do to rebuild them. One of our mission partners is a church in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Uh, Pastor Ephraim is the leader there. And they are seeking to form and, you know, lead a church in Port-au-Prince. But the recent hurricanes have leveled the country. 
and in its place has grown corruption, government corruption, so that the people who are trying to get back on their feet from hurricane after hurricane, trying to start their own businesses, are being knocked down again and again. And they can't even go out in the streets now because of the corruption there. The building work is slow. It's difficult. They're up against so many challenges in their context. And yet, Ephraim maintains hope. How do we get that kind of hope? Where does that come from? How is Ephraim able to envision the new, the new thing God is doing when he's surrounded by ruins? Our missional community started about four years ago, and just this past May, our leadership decided that it was time to close our missional community. There are various rational reasons that accompany that. We were noticing that our mission, our shared mission, was no longer as shared as it used to be. We were also noticing that the relationships that constituted the group were beginning to take on an organic nature that, that grew beyond the organized, uh, the organized scheduled meetings that we had. And so our, our group began praying, our leadership team began praying, and we felt God leading us to, call, to close our missional community. And since then, of course, we've seen our missional community members much more often than we used to because those relationships uh, continue. But when we closed it, I immediately thought, well, what is the next thing that God is going to be doing? And as we've moved into this fall, I thought that we'd have something built by now. I saw, thought that we'd have a new missional community in place right now, but that hasn't been the case. And so in my anxiety, I've been looking at what we used to do and trying to make that happen again. But I can't just recreate the past. I have to acknowledge the fact that I'm grieving. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I miss our former missional community. And I would be wrong to look back and just say, we're just going to do the same thing we used to do. Instead, I have to ask God, what is the new thing that you are leading us towards? What is the new thing that you're building? Not to be caught up in the nostalgia of the past, but to wonder what is the new thing God is building? But that restart is hard work. We have to submit ourselves. We have to slow down. We have to realize that the future is going to look different than the past. This is something that our church has learned over the past 26 years since its founding. It started off with some leaders who were leaving their, the churches that they came from in order to form something new called Victory Point. They left their established churches in order to build something new, and they started gathering in a uh, performing arts center. And as they, they gathered, they were forming something new together. But as they continued to meet in the performing arts center, they realized that God was doing something new again, that God was leading them to, that someone had given a gift of land and God was leading them to start building this building. And here we are in this building that, that leaders built a long time ago. That, I mean, even just, uh, what is it, 23 years ago or something that this building was built. And some of you were part of creating it. We're, we're, on, we're on rotation praying over this property, praying for our ministry, praying for the future of this church, and here we are. But as we've moved forward, uh, the, the, you know, this building was filled. Uh, this building was packed. There were two services. 
And since then, we've grabbed a hold of other new things and let go of the past. And we've, we've realized that maybe our calling isn't so much to gather people here, but to, to gather them in order to send them. That at our heart, what we're called to is to become missional disciples, sent into every neighborhood and network that we're a part of, to be able to witness to God's kingdom there. And as we've done that, we've had to let go of some old things. And some of us, some people have left. A lot of people have left because of that. And those of us who have stayed have had to endure change, have had to grab hold of the new thing and let the old thing die. We're a different church than we used to be. But we're not trying to create a church that necessarily attracts the most people. We're not trying to create the flashiest church or the the best ministries. We are seeking, our leadership is seeking to follow God into the new thing. To ask God, what is the new thing that you are trying to build here? Even as our temples get torn down, we are working together with God to ask, what is the new thing that you're doing? This can happen at a personal level. In fact, our growth as Christians involves constantly letting go of the old thing and grabbing hold of the new. I was talking to someone a few weeks ago who said as an early Christian, they remember what it used to be like to pray and to worship and how everything felt so new and fresh and that God was answering prayer immediately, that, that they were able to experience incredible growth, even just you know, as a new Christian. But now, as a more seasoned Christian, they're, they're struggling because they miss that feeling that God is as close as God used to feel. They miss the feeling of prayers being answered right away. They've encountered certain struggles and setbacks, and they've had to come to grips with God not answering certain prayers and wondering what that, was, what that meant. And what's happening over our life of faith is that we're constantly meeting loss and grief and changes and questions and things where we're staring at our foundations, the foundations of what used to be, and asking, how do we move forward? How do I move forward into this next stage of faith when I miss the old stage of faith? What I love about this passage are the words of encouragement that Haggai gives to the people. He says this, But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. God is still present. God is still present, which is even, which is a remarkable thing because they don't have the temple anymore. The temple was the center of their universe. The the temple was the place where they prayed, the place where God's presence was housed. And the temple has been destroyed, knocked to its foundations. And yet, Haggai says, I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. I am with you. God's presence is still there. And so the people are encouraged. He says, work, and they do. The people are encouraged and they, they, uh, they end their 18 years of procrastination and they begin to build. And in five years, the temple is completed. And uh, it's still standing when Jesus is walking by it with his disciples. Um, actually, we're going to talk about that story next week. Jesus is walking by it with his disciples. 
And the disciples are remarking about how beautiful the temple is. They're saying, what large stones? How, how beautiful is this temple? And do you know what Jesus says? He says, that's nothing. That's nothing. This is all going to be torn down. And in 70 AD, the temple is torn down again. It's torn down again. Today, that temple mount is a mosque. So what does it mean that the temple was being rebuilt. Why does Haggai say these things? Why does he encourage the people? At first glance, I think, Haggai, why did you encourage the people to rebuild when it was just going to get torn down again? What's the point of all this? Isn't this vain? But it's not because as, as the people are building the temple, God is building something else. With each iteration of this temple, as the people are coming together and building God's temple, God is building a new kind of temple. Look at John 4. Jesus is at the well with the woman in uh, Samaria. And he says this to her. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Jesus is saying it's not going to be about it's not going to be about this mountain. It's not going to be about that mountain. It's not going to be about the building. Because ultimately God is not interested in building buildings. God is interested in building his church. He's interested in building his family in gathering the people of God back into the family of God. In the passage, God says the, the glory of the, this, this present temple is going to be greater than the former. What is God talking about? He's talking about the new Jerusalem. He's not talking about a simple structure of stones and gold and silver. He's talking about the glory of his presence, fully known in new creation, that in Revelation 21, it talks about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a jewel. And God gathers his people at the, at the culmination of the new creation. God gathers his people together as a worshiping body where his presence is known fully that we don't even need any light. The, the glory of God itself is the light of new creation. And that glory is held in God's people. Ephesians 2 says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The author is saying, Christ Jesus himself is the chief's cornerstone. You can take down all this other stuff. We could take down our building. We could take down our programs. We could move. We could, these relationships in this room are, are not forever. That some, someday these will pass away too. But what remains is Christ Jesus as the foundation because God is building a whole new kind of church. He's building a whole new kind of temple. And we are the living stones that he's gathering God wants to show his presence and glory, not in church buildings or institutions, but in his people. 
We are the temple of God. We are the temple that God is building. And then we are the place, we are the people in whom he wants to dwell. So how do we become that temple? How do we move forward when we keep getting knocked down? When the structures of our lives keep getting knocked down? When we keep losing our jobs? When we keep having to restart relationships? When we keep having to change uh, stages of faith or spiritual practices or move homes or change careers? How do we get through all these transitions as a church? I believe it's through becoming people of prayer. Our work is to become people of prayer. Um, uh, Torrance, who wrote uh, the book Worship Community and the Triune God of Grace, tells a story. Torrance is a pastor, and he's, um, he goes down to the beach to swim. And as he goes down to the beach, he notices this um, elderly man walking up and down the beach, just pacing. And so on his way out from swimming, he, he engages the older man, and, and they begin talking, and um, he finds out that this man, um, his, his wife is, just start, uh, is going through surgery. And he's not sure if she's going to make it. And this man talks about how his, his, uh, in his childhood he had faith and his pa- father was a pastor and how he wished that he did have faith. He wished that he had faith to be able to, to endure moments like this and he doesn't know how to pray anymore. And so he's been pacing up and down this beach to try to remember how to pray, to try to regain a sense of faith, to try to figure out how to identify the location the, the, to try to reconnect with God. And Torrance tells him, says in his book, he says, did I just tell him, did I throw him back on himself? Did I tell him that he ought to pray more or he's not doing it right? No. What I told him was that Jesus knows exactly what this is like. Jesus walked this earth and experienced suffering and rejection in separation from his father. But Jesus helps us. Jesus prays for us. That even now Jesus is praying for you. And even when you don't know how to pray, like in Romans 8, it says we don't know how to pray how we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us and prays for us even when we don't have the words, when all we have is groans. God, through the Holy Spirit, is praying on our behalf. And so, prayer in itself is God saying, I already know who you are. I know what's on your heart. God is praying for us. God draws us into prayer. And even as we're here in worship, God draws us together in worship. That we are not here to to try to climb some ivory tower to get God's attention, but God has gathered his people to say, I want to be with you. And so the work that Haggai talks about, you know, he encourages us to work. But our work is not to build this temple. God is building the temple. Even in this passage, God supplies all the needs. He gathers all the treasures and he is with the people to encourage them and inspire them to work. But our work is not to build the temple, but to attune ourselves to God. Our work is prayer. And it helps us release the old and collaborate with God in building the new. Teresa of Avila, 
says this about prayer. If someone is so caught up in worldly matters, there is no hope for their recovery. If she gets into the habit of addressing the Magnificent One as if he were her servant, never questioning the manner in which she is expressing herself, merely letting whatever pops into her head fall out of her mouth, she is not praying. I think so often we're, we're so overcome with our loss and our grief that our prayer life becomes about anxiously trying to rebuild what has been lost. And we forget who we're talking to. We forget the person that we are addressing and we don't make ourselves available in order to be healed, to be ministered to by God. We think it's up to us to reassemble our broken lives, but it's not. Richard Foster says this, he picks up on that same idea. Attuning ourselves to divine breathings is spiritual work, but without it, our praying is vain repetition. Attuning ourselves to divine breathings. That is prayer. Later on, he says, the first, second, and third most important thing in prayer is listen, listen, listen. And this is the foundations of contemplative prayer. The idea that as we come into prayer, we don't first and foremost ask things of God. Our first work of prayer is simply to make ourselves available to God. We come into God's presence and we say, here I am. Here I am. Whatever I carry with me, I carry it into your presence and I'm available to you. Make yourself available to me, God. I want to spend time with you. I want to be yours. I want to, I want your will to be done. I want to receive you again. And so we enter into prayer in solitude, in silence, with contemplation of God's character, who God is. And as we do that, we get the same thing that the people in the story get. We get a renewed sense that God is with us, despite all the evidence contrary. We remember that God is with us, that our temples could get broken down again and again. Our forts could be taken down again and again. Our universe could be shattered again and again and again. And yet, God's presence remains. It gives us confidence and courage to be able to face change and loss and destruction and growth, to let go of the old because we have confidence that as we let go of the old, as we build the new, we are not losing God's presence, that God is still with us. And so we don't work, we don't build in order to gain a sense of God's presence, but because God is already here. God is with us and it gives us courage to endure and persevere through those transitions and changes. I want to lead us with a few reflection questions. At Victory Point for the last 26 years, I believe we have discovered something about how to be the church. We have been preceded by courageous leaders who have become people of prayer, who are less concerned about trying to grow and build this church and more concerned about being the church, being people who pray, being people who make themselves available to God's presence and will. Allow themselves to be formed and shaped by his presence. And that gives them the courage 
to act boldly, to make changes. And as we go forward, we will still have to change. There are things that right now that constitute our church, that constitute our spiritual life together, that will have to change. We will have to continue to become the church in new ways. How are we going to do that? We're going to do that by becoming people of prayer who ask, God, what are you doing? Where are you right now? And we make ourselves available to God so that we can let go of our old things, our old forts, our old temples, and grab a hold of the new thing God is doing. So here are my, I have four questions to reflect on. What are the forts and structures that have been torn down in my life? Where is there grief and loss and change in my life? That's our first question. The second question is this. What is God revealing about himself in this? What is God saying to me? The third question is, what would you do if all of your needs were met? What would I do if all my needs were met? God, God shakes the nations and brings the gold and silver. God provides his presence and encouragement. And some of us, there's something that God has been encouraging us to do. There's something, some way God has been asking us to, to minister, or to serve, or to pray, or to, to move forward somehow in our life, to grab hold of the new. But we haven't done it because we were afraid that we weren't going to be able to do it. Just like Zerubbabel or the people wondering, how in the world could we ever get this done? And so they procrastinate. But if all of your needs were met in Jesus Christ, if God has given you all that you need in his presence, what would you do? And fourth, how are you regularly attuning to God in prayer? What does that look like for you to make yourself available to receive God in prayer? Let's reflect on those questions and then I'll pray. God, thank you that you created the world to be a dwelling place between God and people. In the garden, our ancestors decided to rebel. They turned away from you. And yet you continued to seek them out, to extend your covenant love, which was most fully done in the person of Jesus Christ, who made atonement for us on the cross, finally reconciling us back into God's family. Thank you, God, that you have given us new birth in the Holy Spirit, that the new creation that you promise, there's a seed of that in our hearts and in this community. We pray that we would be people of prayer, we would be people who are becoming those living stones gathered together into one temple where your glory, your presence is most fully known. 
I pray today that you would gather your church, that you'd gather your people, they'd fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we would be the people who display your glory on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.